What's an example of someone using strength for good? Lifting a car to save a kid. Moms have been known to do that from sheer adrenaline. George? Have something before? Okay. Any other example of someone using strength for good? Like some people's dads who were up till 3 in the morning because of the storm. Or 3.30 in the morning. And then were there early in the morning all day cleaning up. Daniel's dad. Daniel himself was there. Any other examples? Any other hands that I see? Sienna? Somebody already kind of said it. Basically, like if somebody you love is in trouble, you are like, you have the adrenaline. Yeah. If someone's in trouble. Uh, in 1944, America used its military strength to invade Normandy, France, break through the strong defenses of the Nazis, and basically rescue Europe. Someone who has a strong will is able to overcome temptation and not eat sweets, eat cupcakes, when someone brings you cupcakes. Strength is a good thing. A strong wrestler is able to overcome a weak wrestler. Imagine a man who comes home and sees his house on fire. The first floor is up in flames. Flames bursting through the window. About to engulf the whole house. His family's up on the second floor calling for help. So he runs into the burning building and is immediately engulfed in flames. Fails to save his family. House burns down. Strength is a really good thing. Strength is a good thing. But only real strength is a good thing. Thinking you are strong or bragging about being strong but not being strong is not. It's not good. Bragging about being strong is one thing. Actually being strong is another. The man's problem in that silly little story wasn't that he wasn't strong enough. It was that he didn't realize just how weak he was. He had a false sense of strength. A false confidence led to his ruin. False sense of strength will lead you to your ruin. Each of us have a house that's on fire. Each of us have a sin problem that's consuming our lives. And all of us, in our foolishness, think that we can run inside and overcome the flames on our own. Your false confidence might show up in trying to present like a really tough, macho attitude to others. Your false confidence might show up in anger. You face problems just by raging inside. But that usually doesn't help. Your false confidence might even show up by just moping around all day. You might say to me, that's not true. I mope around all day. I don't think I'm strong at all. I actually think I'm pretty weak. I don't have control over anything in my life. And I can't do anything about my problems. And I'm sad all the time. Well, I think that actually might be a result of misplaced confidence. You might be wishing for a worldly strength or wishing for a different situation that God hasn't given you. If you find yourself wishing that your life looked different, looked more like someone else's who had everything put together, it might be a sign that you're hoping for the wrong kind of strength. You see, spiritual forces in the world 
are much greater, much stronger than we realize. Compared to sin, we are weak. We're helplessly weak. Compared to sin, we're like a foolish man running into a thousand degree burning house. But compared to God, sin is very weak. Sin is helplessly weak. So the only way to overcome sin and the results of sin, death and hell, is to acknowledge our weakness and turn to our strong God. And that's the point of the book of First and Second Samuel. It compares God's strength to man's. And it shows that in comparison to God's strength, man's strength is hopelessly weak. We see that from the very beginning of the book. So open to 1 Samuel 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to read through this whole prayer of Hannah's, who was a woman who couldn't have children. God miraculously grants that she can have children. Why am I looking at you, Hannah? This is a prayer from a Hannah in the Bible. We're going to read her prayer, which is in response to God miraculously granting her a child. As we read, notice how she describes God and how she describes man. We're going to answer questions about those in just a second. I'm going to read this out loud. Follow along in your Bibles. 1 Samuel 2. And, Hannah's, and Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap, and he makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What are some ways that Hannah compares God to man in this prayer. Augie. She talks about how like God is very powerful mm -hmm. and loving and that man is where do you see that? Yeah. Does anybody else see anything else in this prayer where Hannah's comparing God and people? Um, I don't know. 
said I've been um he said um she said verse two, there's no one holy like the Lord, there is no one beside you, there is no rock like a God. So God is Yeah, he's holy. He's like a rock firm. There's none holy. There's none beside you. There is no rock. So there's a major difference. George. Um, in uh, verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ashes to make them sit with the princes and inherit seat of honor for the pillars of the earth of the Lord and on them he has set the world yeah so the poor and the needy lift themselves up no God in his strength lifts the lowly up is this prayer helping us to see that the Bible as we're reading through it as we're going through this series the Bible is one story about man's glory by saving himself in his own strength no. This prayer going right along with our theme is showing that the Bible is one story about God's glory by redeeming a people in Christ. God gets the glory because he's the one that powerfully saves. He strongly lifts up the weak and the helpless. He saved a weak, helpless nation out of slavery in Egypt. He saves this same nation who's just spiraling in sin in the book of Judges we saw just continually trapped in idolatry, turning away from the Lord, calling out to help, being saved, falling right back into idolatry. God keeps helping them, keeps saving them. Remember how that book ends? It says there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What's that setting us up to wait for, to expect next in the story? There is no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. George? Um, I expect Israel to fall. Yeah, that's a good expectation. And they do over and over and over because they've shown themselves that. What are we hoping for, maybe? They get a king. A king. We're hoping for a king. And in First and Second Samuel, they get a king. It's two books. It tells one story. There are really three main characters. There are a bunch of characters dizzying almost how many characters there are in First and Second Samuel. But there are three main characters. Samuel, who the book's named after, who is born of Hannah. He's a prophet and a priest. There's Saul, the first king of Israel. And then there's David, the second king. Those are the three main characters in the book. Samuel's the prophet who God uses to choose the king. Saul is the first king God lifts up. But he's a bad king. David is the second king. He's a good king. A man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13 says. So there's Samuel, the prophet, Saul, the bad king, David, the good king. One of the main points of the whole story of God raising up one bad king, then having David, a good king, replace him, is to show that it's not man's strength that succeeds, but God's. God gives Israel a bad king so that they long for a good king. Saul was a big, strong man. He was a whole head taller than most everyone else in Israel, it says. But he sins against God. He breaks God's law. And he's 
continually is trusting in his own strength and his own wisdom. So God removes the kingdom from him and gives it to David. There's a lot of drama that goes on in, in that interchange and the passing of the kingdom from Saul to David. And that's what takes up a lot of mostly first Samuel. But the mighty Saul, the point is that the mighty Saul is replaced by a little shepherd boy from Bethlehem. People judge by appearances. God's out to show that appearances aren't how we should judge. God tells Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, talking about David, because I have rejected him, Saul rather, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There's a question for us. What's one way that you value outward appearance more than the heart? You value racism more than no, the heart. No, 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 no. Okay. I'm saying that's one way. <laughs> Tell me more. Um, well, when, <laughs> when, people, when people look a certain way, other people like to discriminate, um, especially when they look a lot different. Yeah. Like skin color. Yes. So racism is, is an example of people judging by outward appearance, not the heart. Any other examples? Sienna? Like, let's say, you know, like, a younger version of yourself, toddler, not toddler, a little older. Mm -hmm. You see somebody who's, like, deformed or something. Mm -hmm. And you do exactly what your mom says. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I've thought about it. It's just super embarrassing. And you look at them, and you point at them. Yeah. And another thing is that um, we used to, me and my siblings used to judge other Muslim kids mm -hmm. because they were Muslim. And um, yeah, um, I just don't, yeah, that's one way I think, but yeah. not two ways. Maybe but judging like their culture rather than who they are as an yeah. individual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any others? George? Um, like, um, bullying? Or, like, taking, like, looking at a kid and think, thinking, ooh, he looks like a bully. He must be a bully. I'm going to stay away from that kid. Or, and maybe that kid's, like, really nice. Yeah. Assuming someone's a bully without knowing them. Or vice versa. Someone who's bullying someone else often does so because of how another person looks. How about hiding sin? I think we all, when we hide sin, rather than confess sin, are valuing how other people see us more than having a clean conscience and a pure heart. That's one way. I know I and others, and all of us, anytime we're concealing sin, are valuing outward appearance more than the heart. Eventually, because David trusts the Lord and is faithful to him, and he leads Israel to victory over his enemies, think David and Goliath. That story is from 1 Samuel. Uh, David's winning victories, overcoming enemies. 
Eventually, because of this, God makes a promise or an agreement or a covenant. Chris, a covenant <laughs> with David. So now turn to 2 Samuel 7. Turn to 2 Samuel 7. Again, I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. So that's everyone actually stand up. Take your Bible in your hand. Stand up as we read God's Word. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. We can sit back down. What does David want to do at the beginning of this chapter? David has a kind of a good desire. What is it? He wants to build a temple for God. Yeah, he calls it a house. He wants to build a temple for God. I think that's a probably a good desire. He's seeing I'm living in luxury now, basically. Shouldn't God live in a better place than me? How does God turn the tables on David? George. God will 
Yeah, he says, you want to build me a house, David? I'll build you a house. Talking about a household, a line, a lineage of offspring of kings coming from him. The way you, like, you would think of the house of uh, Tudor or Stuart from the English monarchy would call them a house. I'll build you a house. God wants to keep David from thinking that he's doing God a favor. God's not sitting in the heavens waiting. Oh, I really just wish someone would build me a house. I'm, I'm stuck in this tent. I wish someone would just build me a house. God's using this situation to teach David and us a lesson. God does not need us. He doesn't need any favors from his creatures. He spoke everything into being with a mere word. He's given us life and breath and everything. Look at verses 8 and 9. He reminds David that I took you from the pasture. I have been with you. I have cut off all of your enemies. He's reminding him that he's been the one sovereignly guiding his life. He doesn't need David to do any favors. God's the one taking the action. Here's a question for you to think about. Do you think your salvation is any different? Do you think that peace with God is any different? Do you think being made a temple of the Holy Spirit is any different? Do you think God is sitting in heaven saying, I really just wish this person would believe in me. Oh, that would make my day. Man, I am so sad because this person isn't believing. You know, God's not sitting around waiting. He is active. He is powerful. He is strong, and he's strong enough to save. When he wants a people, he makes a nation. When he wants a tent, he makes a tent. When he wants a temple, he builds a temple. When he wants to save somebody, he makes them new. He cleanses them. He calls them. And he takes them. He takes up his home in them. Has God made you new? Has he called you? Has he saved you? Don't assume that you're saved just because you've made a decision at some point in the past. Look for the effects that the Holy God says he will have on your life if he saves you. He'll give you new hearts with new desires. He'll make you holy. He'll grant you faith. He'll give you a love for himself, for his word, for his people. Now, your works, your good deeds, your holiness, your love cannot save you. I'm not saying that. God's powerful grace always produces good works in the people that he saves. But how does God save? He saves through the son of David, through the son of this king who will sit on David's throne. Look at verses 10 through 14. Look at verses 10 through 14. After reminding David that it's been me, I've been with you, I took away your enemies from before you, I put you on the throne. He's now telling David what he will do. God will make David's name great. He will give rest to the people of Israel. God will put David's offspring on the throne of God's kingdom forever. This is fulfilled in two ways. As we keep studying the Bible over the next several months, we'll see David's physical offspring 
sitting on the throne. Solomon is the next one. And God fulfills these promises. An heir of David is on the throne. He even gives peace to the nation and prosperity to God's people. But God's promises go beyond the nation of Israel, beyond an ancient civilization from this book written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. Israel, after all, eventually gets conquered, and no one's on the throne for a while. David's sons are so disobedient that the throne's lost, Israel's conquered, and for hundreds of years, no one's a king in Israel. So have God's promises failed? That's the major question of the Old Testament. Nathaniel, you're shaking your head. Why not? How do we know God's promises have not failed? Bible study answer, it is Jesus. That's the question of the New Testament. As they're going into exile, Isaiah says this, wondering, is this kingdom, is this promise not going to be fulfilled? Is the kingdom going to be lost? Isaiah says in chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah prophesied about this coming son of David. That's why Matthew and Mark and Luke are adamant to note Jesus's genealogy. How does Matthew's gospel start? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David of David, the son of Abraham. He wants everyone to know that this man he's writing about is the fulfillment of this covenant, these promises that God's making in 2 Samuel 7. God makes promises here that are only fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus alone is the faithful son of God. I will be like a father to him. He will be like a son. He's the only one who takes on flesh and fulfills perfectly this father-son relationship. He's the only perfectly obedient son of David. Unlike most of David's sons who sin and bring upon punishment on themselves and the whole nation, Jesus is the true son of David who instead of earning punishment, takes the punishment of his people on himself. Just like he showed his strength by choosing the lowly shepherd David, God shows his power to save from sin by sending his son as a little boy born in Bethlehem who willingly submits to God's law and dies a death on the cross. This death looks weak to the world. This death earns Jesus mocking from the people while he's on the cross. But this death earns Jesus the throne of David and earns salvation for his people. That's how Paul explains what Jesus does. In Philippians 2, he says, instructing the people in Philippi, the church in Philippi, to be humble. He says, use Jesus as your example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, that is Jesus, humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's kingly, royal language that Paul is using of Jesus because Jesus fulfills this covenant relationship. He obediently follows God's law, obediently goes to the cross out of love for his people. God flips our human way of thinking about what is strong, what is strength, what is power. It's through weakness that God shows his strength. He does so in David, he does so in Jesus, and he does so in us, in people today. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Paul counts himself among those weak that God graciously chooses to show God's strength, to show God's power to save. Paul says, after talking about a thorn in his flesh, he pleaded with God to take it away. Paul concludes, he says, that God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I, Paul, will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As we said at the beginning, strength is a good thing. But you don't have the strength in yourself to do what's necessary. You don't have the strength in yourself to pull yourself out of that spiral of sin we saw Israel in in Judges. They needed a king. So you and I need a king to save us. To save us from our sin. Have you in your weakness confessed your need for King Jesus? Have you said, I'm unable to save myself. I need help. Have you turned away from sin and submitted to Christ as Lord by gladly following his teaching and his law? Are you willing to be seen by others, maybe classmates, even family members, as weak and as foolish? It's no foolish thing to confess what's true. I cannot save myself. I am weak. I am sinful. I need Christ. And so do you. Let's pray. Father, as Hannah prayed, there is none like you. You are the holy God of Israel. You are a rock, a rock of salvation, a firm ground on which we can stand. We are weak, mortal men and women, boys and girls. We are sinful. We are in great need, Lord. Help us to see our weakness, to see our sin clearly, and help us by saving us from it in Christ. Lord, bring us out of rebellion. 
under the rule of Christ as our King. Make us glad and willing subjects of his royal rule. We pray that you would do this in each and every one of the lives here tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.